we want to have these conversations about the things that really matter to us, if we want to inspire people to change their views who have diametrically opposed views, we don't want to waste our time screaming into the void about what we think matters most. We want to actually get to know what matters to other people first and foremost. And then one of two things might happen. Maybe I'm changed. Maybe I learned something that really shifts my perspective. And maybe that's okay. But also, maybe in learning about your view, I now know what part of my perspective is aligned with your point of view, and which is a little bit different. And it's going to give me clues about how to bring up those differences, bring them to your attention and help you get curious about me in the way that I've been curious about you. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about social impact and sustainability. So passionate, in fact, that this week I created a five-step guide to help you unleash your inner activist. Curious? It's available to our entire community. All you have to do is go to caremorebebetter.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll get it for your welcome gift. Now, today we're going to have a little bit of fun as we're joined by someone who's skilled at thinking on her feet and navigating even the toughest and most difficult conversations using skills that come from theater and improv, Aidan Nepom. Aidan Nepom is a pragmatic and playful advisor on communication and change. She's a TEDx speaker, a senior facilitator at On Your Feet Improvisation for Business, president of the Art of Change Skills for Life and host of the Changed podcast. Aiden is an award-winning performer and has taught and performed improv theater skills around the world. She helps her clients develop powerful, flexible, and fun communication skills that build trust, increase motivation, and increase your influence up, down, and sideways. Aiden, it's so nice to have you here. Welcome to the show. <laughs> hey, how are you? I'm doing great. I want to know how you support people up, down, and sideways. That's a creative way to explain it. <laughs> well, because a lot of the work that I do is inside of really large organizations, building your influence and your credibility isn't just about managing people. Sometimes you need to manage up. Sometimes you need to manage cross-functional relationships or outside partners. And so the communication schools school of thought, the communication <laughs> tools and skills and practices that myself and my colleagues bring to these organizations really do help people in all of those directions with their collaboration and getting buy-in on what they need and helping get really clear on priorities and all of that good stuff. Well, that's great. I think about some of the difficult conversations I've had over the years. And I think that's something you and I were talking a bit about. I had an earlier episode with Genevieve Smith, where we talked about having a conversation with your racist uncle at Thanksgiving as an example. That brings wonder... back so many memories. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wonder if you have an example like that of uh, something either politically charged or that was just difficult to navigate through just to help showcase for our audience, you know, what that could be like. 
and how we can have more sure. open discourse. You know, it's funny when you said racist uncle, I immediately thought of an experience that I had as a teenager, which this is not related to what I do. I mean, I guess it is, it's all related, <laughs> right? But it's not specifically the tools that I do now uh, because I was 12, you know, so, <laughs> but we were at an anniversary celebration for my grandparents who are no longer with us. And all of the waiters at this resort were Jamaican. I don't know why. I don't know what that deal was. I don't know if it was one guy hired his friends. I don't know. Like, I really don't know. But literally everybody that worked as a table side server was a Jamaican native and English sounded like it was Jamaican English. And, you know, it was like, it was really noticeable. But so our waiter comes to the table and he's this very, very, very tall man. And he greets us with that thick Jamaican accent. And the very first thing my grandmother says is, I just love you people. Oh. <laughs> which was <laughs> even at 12, I had kind of a like deep visceral response to her saying that of just being so like, I just wanted to crawl under the table and, and die because my grandmother said that now to be fair at 12 years old, it didn't take much for me to feel that way, but that one felt pretty intense. And it was quickly chased by another family member at the table saying, you look just like that one basketball player <laughs> just was like, hand me a shovel. I'm just going to keep digging. Right. But so he replies, Clyde Drexler, ma'am. And she goes, no, no, not that one. The oh other God. basketball player. And he goes, I look like Clyde Drexler. People tell me all the time I look like Clyde Drexler. And it was one of those experiences that just kind of stays with you. There is no really like a happy ending to that particular story. There wasn't really an intervention in that moment. Time passes and our understanding of the world around us shifts and changes. My relatives who operated in that way at that meal, they, they haven't changed tremendously other than that, you know, my grandparents are no longer here. My my other relative is up there in years now. And I think that she's just less inclined to tell people in general, they look like other people. That feels like dangerous territory to her now. But in the moment, both of them were coming from this place of wanting to really relate to this server, to be friendly with this server, to like build relationship with this server. And I think that's the part that translates to today is that people's intent in the late 80s, early 90s, counted for a little bit more than today. Now we talk so much about impact, that it can be really, really challenging to simply recognize when somebody is coming from that place of good intent and causing it's still I'm not saying it's harmless, the impact is there. But like we breeze right past that part where it's like, look, I can tell you're trying to build a really good relationship here. That's an important thing to acknowledge when you're talking to somebody you know, and to say, you know, but what you may not be aware of is how your words are impacting the person who's receiving them. Do you want to talk about that? Can we have that conversation? You know, so I think it's just, it's interesting to reflect back. That's, you know, it's one of many stories in my personal journey. And I, I think we all have stories like that, whether they're about, you know, people who look like other people, people with accents, trying to understand the world around us, whatever it is. I think we all have stories that remind us of times when we were like, something in this conversation didn't sit right with me and I didn't know what to do. Right. Well, for me, it brings to mind something that isn't race related at all, but more class related. And by class, I mean, income or access as opposed to what other definitions might be. 
I worked for somebody for years and she would just famously come into the office and talk to all the other ladies there and say things like, oh, well, you just have to go to this spa or, oh, my Pilates instructor, this, that, the next thing. And I'm like, do you really understand that you're not paying these people enough to be able to go to that private Pilates instructor or go to that spa? And it comes off as tone deaf. So... I think just being perceptive about your audience and understanding that each person comes from their own truth is really where we need to be and where the current moment is asking us to be. But it's really hard, I think, for people to get used to it and to just say, oh, okay, well, I just now I'm going to clam up because I don't know how to respond. And I can see that their eyes glazed over as I was talking to them. So now I'm just not going to do that anymore. So I shut down. (laughs) Conversation stops right? Which doesn't serve anybody. So for somebody who might be tackling that in their own small way, what would your, I don't know, number one bit of advice be for them? Sure. It's complicated, right? Because we're constantly running everything that we experience, think, whatever. We have our filter that the world passes through and then we put stuff out there. And what I see is people having two main sort of knee-jerk reactions to what the current climate is asking for. And both are very reactionary. One reaction is to, as you just described, sort of clam up. I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing, so I'm just not going to say anything. The other thing that I see happening a lot is people having what I would call a polarity response where they're going so far to the other side, things that they wouldn't have said in the past because they might have been offensive. They're now saying with more frequency because they're like, don't tell me how to think. Don't tell me how to behave. We're all taking things too seriously. Let's all listen up and let's just joke in this way that we weren't joking like 10 years ago. So I think neither are really ideal. What we want is to Generally speaking, when it comes to communication, proceeding with curiosity first is going to be a a great strategy, no matter what. I think when it comes to worry about saying the wrong thing, there's like a million things you could be worrying about in any given moment. The universe is going to continue to provide things for us to be vexed by. And I would suggest that, again, even though current moment isn't prioritizing intent over impact the way I might want it to, I do think that your intent when you communicate with people doesn't, in fact, come through, particularly when your intent is coming from a place of wanting to build relationship. So as long as you're clear about why are we engaging in a conversation in the first place, then that can help show you even when you misstep, as long as you correct quickly and move forward, you're going to be in decent shape, you know? So proceeding with curiosity. I think also humor can help. I mean, joking aside, perhaps that's part of how you work with improv and get people to loosen up a little bit. So I mean, just talk about that, like led you into bringing improv into the business space. And how does that work? Yeah, okay. Well, so I want to, I feel like there's a caveat here around improv and humor, which is him, improv and humor have also been used to justify really horrifying behavior in people. So on its face, like any communication tool that you can think of, intent, practice, you know, great power comes great responsibility. So in and of itself, it's not like telling jokes is benevolent by itself, or that I'm being playful in the moment, which is what improv gives us is is the answer in and of itself. There's 
mindset stuff you got to get in the mix there. There's practice and there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into the mix. So I do feel like I have to give that little bit of a disclaimer because how many of us have been somewhere where somebody said something so horrible to us directly? A lot of us have been in this situation and it's met your disdained expression on your face instead of being met with, did I say something wrong? Or you look like you didn't find that funny. They're like, what? I was just joking. Yeah, you get a big slap on the back. Hey, lighten up. We're just joking around here, right? So like I said, with great power comes great responsibility. That being said, having spent the majority of my life improvising, I mean, the truth is most of us have spent the majority of our lives improvising. Show me anybody who hasn't. But specifically, I mean, improv theater and and teaching improv skills. What I've noticed in my own career, I used to work in software, and in the careers of my colleagues and friends, those of us who are, are well practiced in some of the principles that guide improv on the stage have greater flexibility in the workplace. So the skills that are really beneficial, I think, in communication and in the workplace are the skills of really like noticing all of the offers around this principle. I'm going to take and do something with the offers that show up being really like mindful of when my partner in a collaboration looks good, that's going to reflect well on me. So I want to set them up for success, seeing your audience's needs and issues first. All of these principles that guide how we behave on the improv stage are incredibly helpful in the world of business. And so I've been doing this type of bringing these these tools into the workplace, gosh, since like 2009 or 10, I think. And, you know, it started as an extension of the improv school, Merlin Works in Austin, Texas, that I was teaching for just doing team building and playing improv games. And it evolved into more of a facilitator role where sometimes playing a game is the right move to help illustrate a tool. Sometimes performing an improv scene is a great tool for bringing an idea to life so we can look at it and reflect on it. And sometimes there are other communication tools and techniques that are actually more helpful in that particular moment. And so now at this point, using a lot of the skills and training tools from Art of Change, along with my background in improv, I'm able to do both, which is really, really cool. Yeah, I think in the workplace, my only real exposure to improv is related to sales training when you are role playing either the customer or the salesperson. And it can get a little tedious. So how do you keep it interesting? Yeah, that was going to be my question to you is like, how did you feel about doing improv as part of sales training? Be honest with me. I often had to lead them as part of my responsibility set. And I was close enough with a lot of our salespeople that they would be frank with me. And the feedback I often got was that they just felt uncomfortable, that it felt too canned, that it didn't feel natural, and that because it didn't feel natural, it was harder to engage in the process. And it just felt like it was tedious. And I mean, this is in some cases was me bringing other professionals in to support the sales training. And in some cases, it was somewhat architected by me and another leader within the company. So I didn't have like a right answer for them if there is a correct one. And I felt like I understood where they were coming from, because I'd also been on the receiving end of that, you know, some, let's say, poorly led workshops. 
Yeah. So and thank you for sharing that with me. I find that that perspective is more common than not. So again, it's that intent versus impact thing, right? People who have improv Kool-Aid, so to speak, <laughs> we fall in love with this art form and we immerse ourselves in it. And it's really easy to go into an environment where people have little to no experience with the art form and forget that it's like, you know, we can at times come across like, aliens landing on planet earth for the first time, you know, it can feel um, intimidating. It can feel scary. It can feel out of place. And I think it's the job of a facilitator coming into a workplace to practice what we preach in the improv stage. We see our audience. So when we go into a workplace, we need to see our audience on that. We need to see their needs and issues before our own. Just because I think soundball is super fun as a game to play, it doesn't mean it's the right tool for this particular audience in this particular moment for the challenges that they are facing. And sometimes when people will come to someone like me or any of my colleagues looking for, we want a fun improv training. It's really, really important to ask, what about an improv training specifically are you looking to bring to this team? What about that is intriguing to you? Why now? What's currently happening on that team? What is it that you want people to walk out being able to do or think differently about? And so trainings really should be framed in that way, as opposed to what I have seen, which is like, I've seen an ambush improv show as a training tool. And I'm not a huge fan of that strategy simply because it's like the opposite. It's like, it's like the shock rock. <laughs> so what is an ambush improv training? I'm having a hard time even picturing this. Yes. So an intact team is brought together and they're told they're going to do team building, right? And some high energy improvisers show up and are like, okay, we're going to have some fun and you guys are going to put on a show at the end of the day. So we're going to teach you some improv games. Then you're going to get up on stage for an audience of a full house of people you don't know. It's going to be great. So, <laughs> and for like 10% of any given team, that's like super awesome. And they're like, this is so cool. And I'm going to learn so much. And for the majority of that team, they're going to feel put on the spot in a way that makes them feel all of the feelings you're trying to mitigate by actually going through the experience in the first place. So the intent behind it is to teach confidence, uh, to show you you're capable of surviving and handling more than you know, to have some fun and some laughs and make some memories, to create something with your team together. So there's a lot of really good intent behind a design like that. But the delivery on something like that can really be counterproductive to all of that good intent. You know, I'm very lucky to have had my early start in delivering any kind of improv-related facilitation to have come through Merlin Works for that because the principles I learned as a teacher at Merlin Works, even just teaching improv classes to people who want to be performers, was first create a safe space, get to know the people in the room they need and where they're at. And this resonates really well with what I teach now, you know, to coaching clients and when I'm speaking to audiences about how to bridge the communication gap, it's you got to meet people where they are. This is true about conflict resolution as well. You got to meet people where they are. When you try and yell from across the room, hey, it's amazing over here. Come join me. People get freaked out. They don't want to come over there. So, you know, you got you to gotta meet people where you are. You got to walk to them. You got to energetically go to them. You have to, if their energy is 
squashed and closed and down and you come in with guns a-blazing, energetic guns a-blazing, it can really, really be off-putting. And what you want is to create relationships, not push relationships apart. Yeah, I'm thinking of another example. I went with the NNFA to lobby Congress in Washington, D.C. a couple of times. And in each case, they wanted to kind of give you the things that they're hoping that you'll cover in kind of a bulleted list with anybody that you might meet. And I'm thinking from an activist perspective, this could be actually very important for them. But you know, luckily for me, I was already fairly comfortable meeting with people that were at the CEO and higher level, just, you know, company owners, founders, etc. And so sitting down with somebody I didn't know across a table and presenting an idea to them was something I was already pretty versed in. But I saw a lot of people who were well intentioned with me just get very uncomfortable, nervous, you could tell the sweats were starting on them, you know, they're like, Uh, I just feel all clammed up. And now I'm going into a situation that I don't really understand because I don't work in government. And I don't really know who I'm talking to and what their role is. And the mistake that I would say that the organizers really made in that case was that they didn't prepare us for who was on the other side of the table, what their role was, and what type of effect the message that we we're giving to them would really have. Like, I think if we'd gone in with a clearer expectation, especially those individuals who were more nervous, might have felt a little bit more at ease because it's not like they're talking to Diane Feinstein. They're speaking to an aide below an age, generally speaking, who that's right. Yeah. Might be in their 20s and not have a whole heck of a lot of experience in politics yet. And they're, you know, really just to be quite frank, doing the glad handing that is their job. Yeah, that's right. You know, I actually I worked as an intern for a a lobby when I was 19 years old. And one of my jobs as an intern was to collect pertinent news off of the AP and create a daily briefing, which I'd then run up to the Hill and deliver to the offices of our Congress people and senators. And It was really interesting. I learned so much in that process that the majority of Americans don't learn. It's just, it's not part of really any of our standard education about how our government actually works. The education of having done activism uh, firsthand or having worked for a lobbying organization, or even working for the press, what you learn about how our systems work is different than what our assumptions are about how these systems work. Mm -hmm. It's as naive the way we think about how our government works as the way video game players think video game designers live, right? (laughs) Like video game players are like, oh, it's so cool to work for a video game designer and I just play video games all day. Well, no, actually somebody has to make the game. Sometimes, yeah, I mean, it is part of that process to play through what you've done so far to catch bugs, but that's a different experience than just like sitting on your couch and playing games. And so it's really, you know, it's a valuable education to have spent time going to these offices, conversing with the aides. And sometimes even as an intern, I did get to interact directly with a congressman or with a senator. But most of the time, kind of what you're describing, that you're just talking to the aide of an aide. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're not even at that. No, you're not. You're not talking to the person who's going to make the difference or, or cast their vote really at that point. I mean, they're hopeful that they can influence and educating people who work at that level is very important because you never know what the effect is going to be long term. But I think it would have 
put a lot of people at ease if they really understood the system and there was no effort spent on that. I feel like some of that stuff's just not as intuitive as as you might imagine. One of the things that came from that experience, and I, you know, I credit my upbringing, the Art of Change, my company was founded by my father. So I grew up with a lot of the communication skills just in my atmosphere that I now teach to others. So my experience going up to the hill on a daily basis in that intern role was I still was building relationships with the aid of the aid. I was building relationships anybody that I could have that conversation with, you know, I didn't technically work for the lobby. I was interning for the lobby. So I was, it was more of a learning and mentorship relationship. I was an errand kid, you know, bringing this briefing up. Wasn't my job to read the briefing to anybody, just to deliver it, just to hand it off. But it was worth it to me to build those relationships with people because I learned from them. I could ask them just out of curiosity how does this senator make their decisions on these types of things? How does this congressperson view this particular issue? What are the things that influence their decision making? And I can tell you that in 1997, maybe 1996, <laughs> this is when letter writing was still really big. There's now email campaigns and online petitions. Yeah. Such a long time ago. But at that time, what I learned, letter writing was more influential than anybody ever imagined. And I bet this is still true but not in the way that you might imagine. So we all think we're really special, right? Even when we don't think we're special, even when we have low self-esteem, we're like, my lack of specialness is the most special thing about me. Like we just have a a lens to the world that, that works in this way. So when we write a letter, we imagine that somebody reads that letter. But what was happening was letters would get compiled into binders. And the importance of an issue as a voting issue for any particular senator on average, was how many stacks of big binders did they have for or against a particular issue that was being deliberated? So it was the volume of letter writing. Right, less the content of it. Right. And so what I learned from that, and that was more impactful at that point in history, I cannot speak to now, that was a more impactful choice than going to a protest or chaining yourself to a tree, which was a kind of a popular move at that time. And what struck me about that was like, that can feel really daunting. Like, oh, my voice doesn't count. But actually, when your voice is a drop in a bucket of many voices, every voice counts. Every voice counts because if everybody goes, oh, I'm just a page in a binder, then you end up with a really thin binder. So what you need actually are all those people to contribute that tiny amount of, of effort to get their name in the binder, so to speak. Well, that's exactly how we give rise to new political parties, too. I mean, if you think about the Tea Party, it was not a majority vote that ever really saw them succeed. It was the loud minority and gathering enough of those minority voices together to impact, you know, who got elected, which is kind of amazing in a way. And especially in this political climb where we have, you know, really polarizing space where it's just it was seen forever as, you know, one or other and that's it. And I think we're proving that that isn't necessarily always the case. There are exceptions. And if you are able to really grab hold with your arms, you know, the people next to you that care about the same things, you can push for change. Yeah. It's kind of the power of influence. That's right on. You can have greater pull with people who are already somewhat in agreement with you. It is a harder lift to influence somebody who is opposed to you. Uh, One of the things I teach when I'm teaching influence skills is, you know, everybody has their own, here, I'll do this. Imagine everyone's carrying around a pen, 
mm-hmm. right? Everyone's carrying around a pen. And what that pen represents is everything they've ever really deeply believed and held to be true in this world. This is like, if you think that, let's just say you think that climate change matters that lives in this pen. Maybe if you're a scientist, this is you've held this pen for a really long time, whatever. Everybody's got a pen they're carrying around with them that carries all of their views. And you can see my pen has a shape, it has a color. There's like, there's a lot going on with this pen. And you also have a pen. If your pen looks like my pen, we're already really close to being able to influence each other. Oh, look at that. You've got a blue pen. Our shapes are different. They're both blue. So it's like we can communicate with each other about the stuff that we agree with and we will feel like we are in unison with each other. It builds trust, right? It makes us feel like we're on the same page. So if I bring something to your attention, that's like, oh, you know, you should think about getting a pen that's a push button top instead of a lid. You're like, well, you know, that's interesting because that's not so far from what I already have. But if I come at you and I've got this like giant paint bucket you know, that's my version of a pen. I've got this giant big old paint bucket. I'm carrying that around with me. And you're like, uh, I'm a little pen person. I'd be like, but you really got to think about big paint. It's like, all of a sudden, we're a little bit opposed. We're not on the same page anymore. And when I teach influence, the goal is before you start waving your pen around and preaching all of the amazingness of your pen, you should get to know the other person's pen, so to speak. Um, I don't use pen as an analogy when I'm teaching, but it seemed pertinent at the moment because I could grab it. Hey, it was in grasp, right? Yes, within reach. That's right. Everything's an offer you can take and use. So, and that is that principle. It's like, if I get to know what you care about, if I understand your fears, your motivations, if I understand what you're driving towards and what you're running away from, so to speak, then when I talk to you about my persuasion proposition, the thing that I care about, I know what I'm talking to. Because otherwise, I'm just shouting my views into a vacuum. I'm waiting for someone to react. And as we've seen, social media has demonstrated this for us very well. When you shout into a vacuum and wait for someone to react, the reaction is quite often really negative. Mm -hmm. So we want to get to, if we want to have these conversations about the things that really matter to us, if we want to inspire people to change their views who have diametrically opposed views, We don't want to waste our time screaming into the void about what we think matters most. We want to actually get to know what matters to other people first and foremost. And then one of two things might happen. Maybe I'm changed. Maybe I learned something that really shifts my perspective. And maybe that's okay. But also, maybe in learning about your view, I now know what part of my perspective is aligned with your point of view and which is a little bit different. And it's going to give me clues about how to bring up those differences bring them to your attention and help you get curious about me in the way that I've been curious about you. So you brought up social media, and I did intend to go there eventually today. So now it's appropriate. time. (laughs) I just wonder, I'm connected to many people with different political ideals than my own. And I pride myself on being able to maintain those friendships, largely because I'm able to see past the rhetoric. And I think it gets really challenging for people, particularly when they have ideas that are opposite someone else's. Masking is like a really big issue for people on both sides of the aisle right now. And, you know, it creates, I think, more separation when in a way, I 
I especially think now it's important that we come together. So I wonder if you had one piece of advice to give people about their actions online and in social spaces, what it might be. Yes, here is my favorite piece of advice on this. My favorite piece of wisdom on this is pay attention to what you're assuming. Get really curious about your own assumptions and ask yourself not if your assumptions are right or wrong. That's actually a super unimportant question when you're interacting with other people. Also, assuming theirs are right or wrong, super important. Ask yourself this question instead. Is the assumption that I'm making right now about the person's point of view helpful? Mm. That's it. Uh, You can make useful assumptions and you can make totally unhelpful assumptions. And if you don't make a conscious choice when you're in opposition to somebody to make a useful assumption, your brain will default to, you know, (laughs) alarm bells, abandon ship. Yeah. It's like, ah, danger, danger. We're not on the same page. Cannot trust, must unfriend. So, you know, ask yourself, is the assumption that I'm making useful? And I'll give you some examples of useful assumptions when you're in opposition with somebody. They're going to be useful when you're in agreement with people too, but we don't need as much help there. (laughs) So it's when you're in opposition to somebody that you really need that help. So here's a really useful assumption. Assuming that that person has formed their perspective based on something that makes sense to them, that they have some kind of logic at play, some kind of reasoning at play, and that their values are at stake if it's something deeply held, that they have a great reason, great to them reason for choosing what they've chosen. So a really helpful assumption, as opposed to what I've heard a lot of people assuming about people with an opposing view, which is that they're an idiot, they're uninformed, they're not up on the latest science, which I hear from both sides of the aisle, by the way. Mm-hmm. I do too. They claim ignorancy. Oh, you're just ignorant. You haven't read the science or where are you getting your news? Because that's not what my news says. <laughs> Exactly. And instead of going, well, they're just, they have the wrong information. Um, The reason that's not helpful is because then even from a benevolent place, even if I'm like, oh, poor dears, they don't have the right information. I'll send them the right information. Because of course you have it, right? Yeah. I am the gatekeeper of all of the best information. (laughs) So, you know, instead of that, assuming that somebody has a really great to them reason for doing the things they're doing gives you a direction to point that conversation in, in a genuine way. Because the other thing that happens that causes that deep polarization is people will say, I'm just trying to understand your perspective Mm. when they're not. So if you're going to ask to understand someone's perspective, it's helpful to have that assumption in the back of your head that they have a really good for them reason for choosing that, because then when you're curious, you can really actually be curious. I'd like to understand how you came to this decision and really mean that. That's good. So let's talk for a moment about your podcast. I'd love to know just from your point of view, how it's essentially working to create positive change for people. I have to be honest, I don't know if it is creating positive change for people or if it isn't creating. Yeah, I mean, I would be 100% in assumption territory if I were to make a claim like that. What I can tell you is that those who have come onto the show as guests have expressed that the conversations that we have had 
have been very helpful to them because they've gotten to think about the topic in a, in a different way than they were thinking about. They got to tap into stories in a different way than they were remembering them. So it's been helpful in that way. But I guess I should maybe back up because I don't know that your listeners will have heard my podcast and just say just a little bit about what the podcast is, what I'm doing there. So the Changed Podcast is an exploration of what do we mean when we use that word in the first place? We use the word change all the time and in a bajillion different contexts. And we just take for granted that we all know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And we talk about it. We talk about change as if it's this really like thing, right? Like, ugh, change is, ugh, it's so hard. Change is so difficult. Or we dismiss it. Like, it's really easy. Like, I changed my socks this morning. That was a non-event. You know, it's like, it's the same word. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to invite people to come share their stories with me of moments in their lives after they felt changed. Mm -hmm. So pivotal moments, these fork in the road stories that we all have about things that happen to us or through us or because of us. And I just kind of wanted to understand, like, what do people think of when they think about change? How do they define it for themselves? What stories pop up? And it just came from that place of curiosity. And my 50th episode goes out this week, and then I'm taking a little bit of a break. And then I'm coming back with a, a kid's version, because I actually feel like I've, you know, 50 episodes, I've, I've explored this idea for right now to, to a really nice place. There's a variety of stories and perspectives. And I'm coming to the conclusion that change is hard and also easy. <laughs> And that change is the only thing that we can really say with any definitive truth is that we all go through a lot of change in a lot of different ways in the course of our paths. But what's really fun to think about is what would have happened if you'd taken the other fork or if that event had not happened. Like I think about a guest I had in the first season, Guillermo Martinez, who he was the head of story on the Mitchells versus Machines. I don't know if you saw that. I don't think so. Oh, so good. It's so good. He shared this story of basically he went to go see a movie with his mom and he went to the other movie theater. Like they used to always go to the one movie theater and that particular day they went to the other movie theater. Hmm. And because of that, he connected with a person who had a roommate who was going to a film school outside of Puerto Rico, which is where he was living, where he grew up. And because of that, he was like, oh, I could leave here and I could pursue my dreams. And because of that, he did. And because of that, he made Mitchell's versus the machines. So, you know, essentially. And I think about that story a lot as a really cool example of like, yeah, but what if he had just gone to that regular movie theater, the same one that they always went to? How would that story be different? It's an interesting, fun mind play area, I think, to think about those things. I think the question on my mind moving forward with the Changed podcast is I am starting to get extremely curious about people who have changed their point of view on something, people who've held a strong point of view on something and then changed their mind. Mm -hmm. I want to know about that. What changed your mind? That's, I'm just fascinated by that. So I think season three is going to be focused on that. That's what I'm most curious about right now. Yeah, I think many scientists will say it's the constant state of being a scientist because you're 
constantly changing your mind based on the information that you have at your fingertips. So they go through a lot of that. But I also am curious if you'll kind of uncover something special from that perspective with young children who are experiencing shifting dynamics around them. And they might change their mind with more frequency because guess what? They're less rigid. You know, their ideas aren't as solidly formed. So it's interesting. It's very interesting. Yeah, it will be interesting. With this little mini series I'm doing with kids, well, I think we're going to kind of, I'm going to co-host it with my stepdaughter. This should launch in the next couple of weeks, actually. And the cadence will be different with, with when it's just me hosting. I'll record a bunch at once and then release them as I go. With her, I think we're going to record and release and kind of, it'll be a little less regimented and scheduled so that she can learn the process as well and stay excited. <laughs> but I think I want to follow her lead a little bit and allow that to sort of change how I think about the changed podcast as well. We have a tendency to not just as we age and get more rigid in our own thinking in general, we, but as adults, we tend to forget what it was like to be kids mm -hmm. and how confident we were in our points of views as kids. And I think collecting their perspectives will be a really fascinating experience. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I think you're going to have an incredible time. I really do. I look forward to listening to it. I think that there'll be some incredible conversations. So yeah, I think it's going to be really cool. Yeah, with my six year old, I have these really kind of incredible and intense sometimes conversations about his ideas of the world. And it's amazing to me in some cases how sure he is of something that is absolutely not true. <laughs> And he won't hear my perspective at all. He's so sure of something. I'm like, okay, okay, I guess we'll figure this out later. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Changed podcast originated when my stepdaughter was little and she just wouldn't wear pants. Like, she just <laughs> wouldn't do it. She just was like, why would I? Pants seem like the worst idea. I don't, <laughs> you know? And <laughs> and I was like, that was where this all started because I heard myself say the words to her. Okay, look, honey, I know change is hard. And then I heard those words and was like, uh oh, am I giving her an unhelpful mantra to guide her through the rest of her life? Because approaching life as if change is hard because it's a change, that's not helpful because we will encounter a lot of changes. So, yeah, that's true. Having a more helpful mantra on anything matters. And I wanted to make sure I wasn't poisoning her future with that unhelpful mantra. But that initial moment, that conversation with her and my thinking in that moment was what led me down this path. That was my fork in the road to this podcast moment. So, what would a more helpful way to talk about change be? I think it's great in general to separate the language of discomfort from the language of challenge. Not to say that change isn't hard. Sure, some changes really are hard. But I think when we are saying they're hard, I think what we're really saying is that it's uncomfortable. Familiarity is comfortable. Unfamiliar territory feels exactly like that. Unfamiliar. When I think about when we set out on a new path for ourselves to try and push ourselves to learn a new skill, for example... I often describe it as like, okay, here's Comfort Town. I live down here in Comfort Town. This is where all the familiar stuff lives, even the stuff I don't like. This is where I hang out all the time. And then we set out on our path 
up towards this peak of discovery where we're going to find our best selves or how to crochet a sweater or, you know, (laughs) scuba diving skills or whatever lives in the peak of discovery, right? We set out from Comfort Town and we head up the hill, but this unfamiliar territory in between the peak of discovery, which we can see from Comfort Town, but we can't get to it. This unfamiliar territory, that's point at which we will will head up into that territory and be like, uh, I didn't pack enough snacks and go back, you know, or I, I don't think I really need to go to the peak of discovery today. I think that was a mistake. I'm just going to back into Comfort Town. And even if we despise Comfort Town, we're like every day in Comfort Town is boring and sucks. We'll hang out here because we're afraid not of this but of all of this unfamiliar territory. So I think it's fair to say that change is uncomfortable. Change helps us confront what's unfamiliar. But really, change is the mantra that I use. Change is, and this is a change. Well, I like that. What I will say too is I think a lot about language and the reality of a lot of leadership texts is that they'll say things like, oh, to find a leader, you want to hire somebody who seeks to struggle or who likes to struggle. And I don't think people generally like to struggle. Even talking about it that way, the word struggle sounds very harsh. And so if we think about it from a challenge perspective, a lot of people enjoy conquering challenges. I don't think they think about it as a struggle. I think it's a mindset that really shifts when you think about things that way. And one of the things I've been reminded of recently, and this is by Paul Hawken and his work, he made a comment about life and every cell seeking to become two cells. And when I thought about that, I thought, heck, this is kind of a beautiful way to think about change. Like change is constant. It happens whether or not you want it to. Change can be positive. It can be negative, but it is something that you will encounter in your everyday life because nothing that is living is stagnant. And so if we look at life as being something that's dynamic and ever-changing, then I think we can learn to embrace the things about change that bring us new opportunities, new perspectives, new ways to see things. And if we do that, if we can actually hold that kind of at the center of our frame and our mindset, then I think our relationship to it shifts too, and that our experience living will just be a more positive experience, generally speaking. So that's kind of where my head has been. And I feel like I'm continually learning about change and just a different and more positive way to think about it so that I can adjust and be more stable and healthy in my daily life. I love that. That's beautiful. I'll also say that a lot of times we think about change in a reactionary way. We don't think about change as often as I would imagine, you know, when we're thinking about leaving Comfort Town and heading up to the peak of discovery, we do that with some (laughs) things. But when we're talking about change, quite often what we're talking about is like being evicted from Comfort Town. And now all of a sudden we live in unfamiliar territory. We didn't choose to be here. And oh my God, I can't see the peak anymore. The lack of choice. Right. The lack of choice is really, really a big one when it comes to processing change. And Whether something I got from Andrew Williams, who was a guest on, I think the first season of my podcast, but one of the things that I got for him that actually changed my perspective on change was he really brought up the point that even with positive change, there is a little bit of grief that needs to be tended to. Hmm. Even when it's a change you're excited about, there's a little bit of grief that needs to be tended to. And maybe it doesn't need a lot of attention. There's a little bit. And we certainly know that with, with, being thrust into that uncomfortable territory when we didn't choose it. There's certainly grieving about leaving Comfort Town, even if we hated it. 
So I think we tend to want to brush past grief and grieving processes, but I was really changed on my thinking, you know, coming from an improv background, I didn't used to say have a helpful mantra. I used to say have a positive mantra. I mean, I was really of this like, just think about what you want in the future and move in that direction and be open to what shows up and then move in that direction if you want. And it's not the worst advice, but I just wanted to, like most of us, breeze past this piece where we have to feel our feelings a little bit and learn from them, let them be teachers for us. So I now, when I work with clients, you know, who come to me specifically, maybe they're, when I mean, when I say clients, I specifically am talking about the coaching side of my business. If they're coming to me, maybe in a career change, they're leaving a job and moving into another job. There is, in fact, a grieving process that needs to be in place, leaving a career, moving into a new career, leaving a company, moving to a new company. And when I talk about grief, what I don't mean is don't roll on the ground and just cry. Unless you need a little bit of that, then give yourself room for it. But what I mean is specifically, let the transition be your teacher. Take time to thank the moment for what it can give you, to thank yourself for what you poured into something, to catalog the lessons that you have learned, what you are grateful for, and what you will not miss along the way before you start thinking about, okay, and then I want this, and I'm going to want one of these, and I need some of that. So really taking that moment to process where you are. Well, I think that's good advice for anybody. I have worked for many years for UR Alpine at Nordic Naturals, uh, building that brand. And I described for him something that I would go through after every major event that we hosted. And it was just like clockwork. After every major event, like the biggest trade show we'd done or a giant education conference, something along those lines, I would always feel really deflated right on the heels of it. And I didn't really understand why at first. And I remember we were just having, I don't know, a beer after a show or something like that. And I was just like, gosh, this is just, I always get to this spot where it's like, now that it's in the rearview mirror, I feel low. And he said, what you're describing is grief. And there were a few moments in my working life with him where I was like, this is just true. And it kind of hit me in a way that enabled me from that point forward to prepare for it a little differently, to acknowledge it instead of as something that was, God, I feel low, I feel depressed as, wow, so I'm going to respect this moment. I'm going to look back at everything we just accomplished and kind of let it let out the sigh of whatever it was, like relief or letting go expectations that may not have been fulfilled exactly as I wanted them. Or perhaps even the things that were bigger than I expected to be able just to just acknowledge them in a different way, because I was now aware of what the emotion was that I named it. And it just changed things for me. And so I, I love that. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. I really enjoyed this conversation today. I'd love to know if there are any questions that you wish I had asked that perhaps I hadn't, or if you have a closing thought you'd like to leave our audience with. You know, I spent the first part of 2021 just giving away these reason and outraged world workshops, <laughs> giving them away for whoever would show up instead of trying to sell them to a Fortune 500 company. I just was like, anybody who wants in, just come get this content. Mm -hmm. And I did that because we are currently in a time when we were, we are all experiencing rapid and profound amounts of change in our lives. And what happens when that happens is for many of us, we experience fear of this unfamiliar 
territory. We don't know, are we going to make it to the peak of discovery? Are we going to plunge over the edge into the pit of despair? We don't know what's going to happen to us. Mm-hmm. And when fear becomes a factor for people, logic flies out the window. So I bring that up because while I'm not currently giving those workshops away for free at the moment, I have a lot of other plates spinning and I can only spin so many plates at any given time. (laughs) The principles behind it are really, really, really important to me, which is if we want to have a better world and not a bitter one, we have to take the time to have the difficult conversations with each other well. We have to do it with grace. We have to stop trying to change each other's minds and start trying to find solutions together. Just because we seem to oppose each other does not make us enemies. And if I could impart one piece of wisdom to everybody out there right now, it would be that to be patient with yourself and be patient with the people around you. Everyone's just doing the best we can with the limited resources we have on board in our brain and our training and our heart and our fears and all of those things. So, you know, keep breathing, keep taking time to practice curiosity and as much as you can choose helpful assumptions over unhelpful assumptions because we're all going to assume something one way or another. So you might as well assume something that helps. Well, I will gladly include links to your webpage and also your podcast so people can find more about you. Are there any other ways that you'd like to encourage our audience to reach out to you if they'd like to collaborate or they're just curious to learn more? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I said I wasn't giving that stuff away, but I am actually still like, I'd like to just, I'm like, learn from me and just do these things. And (laughs) if it's resonant, great. So right now, the place that I've been hanging out most often is an app that's about to launch called Wisdom. Hmm. I'm one of the top mentors on Wisdom. And the app itself is filled with really knowledgeable, amazing people who have a lot to share, to teach, to inspire. And so not everyone can afford one-on-one coaching from somebody who's doing corporate training at this level. Not everyone can afford, you know, to enroll. They don't necessarily have the time to enroll in a course or whatever. So this wisdom app that I'm, you know, there's like, I'm putting really short little talks in there and there's tons of stuff. So that, I don't know when that app is going to officially launch to the public, but I think like it's in the next few weeks. So that would be a great place to find me. I'm at Art of Change on the Wisdom app. And that's a great place to like check out some, a little bit more organized thinking and participate in some conversations around some of these topics. I love that. I'll look to find you there too. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining me today, Aiden. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for inviting me to come chat with you. And, you know, this has been a really nice opportunity to get to talk about some of the stuff I really care about. So thank you for that gift. Yeah, thank you. Now, listeners, I'd like to invite all of you, all of you to act. You can check out Aiden's website. You can connect with me. And also visit caremorebebetter.com. Now there, there is that great tool for you, a simple action pack to get you to be a more effective and impactful individual if you're looking to be an activist. So all you have to do is sign up for my newsletter and you'll receive that at no cost. It's our gift to you for joining the community. Now, 
I'd love for you to share this podcast with others in your community that you think could benefit from it. And really just send me a note on my website, or you can even leave me a voicemail just by clicking that little microphone icon in the bottom right hand corner. Now, thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good. 